Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so thankful that we have your word, that we can rely upon your word, that your word is uh, uh, speaks to us with authority because it is your word, but you have not spoken in a vacuum, you have also uh, validated and confirmed it through many convincing proofs, as Luke says in Acts chapter 1, and that, that that confirmation gives us further confidence in the veracity of your word, and that we can rely upon it, and we can trust it, and that we can build our lives upon it, and that that indeed is the only foundation that we can have in our lives. Now, fathers, we continue our study about the truthfulness of your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, and that God, the Holy Spirit, would use use it to uh, reinforce our own faith and trust in your word, and to continue to build that confidence in our in our thinking that we should have in you and in your word. We pray this in Christ's name, Amen. We've been looking at the question of can we trust. The Bible. Can we really trust what the Word says about God? Is the Christian Bible made up of the uh, 66 books of the Old and New Testament? Is this really the Word of God? Now, this is sort of a sub-series within our series in, in First and Second Kings because this is essentially the question that is being asked of uh, Hezekiah, and it's being asked of the inhabitants of Jerusalem who are under siege by the armies of the Assyrians. And as the Assyrian army is, has, been, has invaded Judah uh, and has conquered numerous other uh, smaller uh, towns and cities, now they are surrounding Jerusalem, and the uh, uh, chief leaders in the military and in, the, uh, and in, and in uh, Sennacherib's a cabinet have come out and challenged the leaders of Jerusalem. And they give this message uh, to them, to the people of Jerusalem, to Hezekiah, can you really trust this God to give you victory? Uh, none of the other gods of any of the other peoples have been able to give them victory. And why is your God any different? Can he really save you? Can you really trust him? Can you really believe him? And this is the basic question that we should all ask at different times in our life. Do we really trust God? It's the question that Satan perverts and uses in Genesis chapter 3 in order to get 
uh, Eve's thinking off track. Did God really say? Uh, of course, his implication was, well, God really doesn't have your best interests at heart. You can't really trust him. You really can't trust his word. And this has been the challenge to uh, truth down through the centuries. Can you really trust this? Is this really God's word? And Satan has become very sophisticated down through the years and down through the centuries at bringing up all kinds of challenges and rationales to, that appeal to our sin nature to make us think that the Bible really isn't true, just can't be true. It just, uh, if it were true, more people would trust it, especially in an era uh, like the one in which we live, where there are fewer and fewer people who are really willing to trust the Word. We live in an age of, of apostasy, which means falling away uh, from the truth, uh, an age of tremendous apostasy in in uh, evangelical Christianity and biblical Christianity in America. There have been such tremendous shifts that have taken place over the last, uh, last generation, the last 40 or 50 years. And in many cases today there is a, uh, such a dilution of the teaching of the word that people do not understand how, how little they get in terms of teaching and they think that they're getting great uh, great Bible teaching from sermons that are essentially nothing more than motivational, uh, psychological uh, uh, exhortations, and they no- have nothing to do with the teaching of the Word. So we have to really look at this question, can we trust the Bible? Can we really trust the Greek New Testament's the focus this morning. Last week I looked at trusting the Old Testament and saw that, yes, we can indeed trust the Old Testament, both in terms of the transmission of the text, and we looked at the Dead Sea Scrolls and how the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, gave us an insight into Old Testament manuscripts that were uh, a thousand years or so prior to the oldest documents that we had had up to that point in time. And so that confirmed for us the fact that in the transmission of the text, transmission of the scriptures, that the scriptures had been faithfully preserved with no change. And when we looked at the question of the canonicity of the Old Testament, that is, how the, these books were chosen, we saw that, that they weren't selected by a group of men or a particular council. Often it is said that, that when the rabbis, uh, certain rabbis got together at, at Jomnia in AD 90 after the uh, fall of, the, of Jerusalem, the uh, destruction of the temple in AD 70, that that's when they... Uh, selected these books, and that's that's not. I mean, any study of the history of what happened at that council, it was discussions that were uh, t- that took place among the rabbis in light of having to, to uh, uh, preserve their beliefs, uh, in light of the fact that there would be no temple, no temple sacrifices because of, of the uh, defeat of the Romans, and how to preserve. Uh, Jewish beliefs in Jewish communities that would be scattered throughout uh, the world in the in the di- diaspora, but they only affirmed what had already been accepted uh, by uh, the Jewish communities and Jewish uh, people for uh, at least two hundred years, maybe as far back as three hundred years before that the the canon was accepted and recognized based on 
the fact that these were the books that claimed to be speaking for God, number one. Secondly, they had uh, uh, authorization by various uh, prophets. In many cases, it was prophets who had written these particular books. And third, just it was confirmed by usage. These were the books that were used by people and recognized as authoritative, and there weren't any other books that came into competition. Now, they, the, and we'll see the same thing is true about the New Testament, but there were three three books in the Old Testament that they did have some question about. They had question about Esther because God's name's not mentioned at all in Esther. They had a question about Ecclesiastes, and they uh, some, some question about uh, Lamentations. But other than that, there was no there weren't other books that they thought about that might have been included. And by the time of the uh, end of the first century, the the rabbis that met at, at Jomnia just reaffirmed that, yes, indeed, Esther, Ecclesiastes, and Lamentations should be included, uh, were part of the authoritative collection. So they're, they're, it's not like we, we lost something or something got, uh, something was left out. So this morning what I want to focus on is, again, answering the basic questions we've raised, but this time in terms of the New Testament. So one question that's raised, isn't the Bible just another human book? We've answered that clearly, that it's not just another human book. It claims to be recording the very words of God uh, under the inspiration ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. And so it's either telling the truth or it's lying. If it's lying, then it shouldn't be uh, observed at all and has no authority. Uh, the questions we're addressing last week and this week has to do with the Bible being full of contradictions and errors, and that's not true. We have a clear um, clear transmission of the text. We know that, that it has been preserved under God's sovereignty. It has not changed through uh, being copied or translated. They, we don't translate translations. Uh, sometimes you have paraphrases of a translation, but you don't translate and then translate the translation and translate the translation. That is not what occurs. People always go back to the original languages. Uh, we And because of the examples of things such as the Dead Sea Scrolls, we'll see other examples today, we can be sure that the Bible we have today in terms of the original languages is uh, uh, very close to the original any differences would be differences of spelling. Sometimes you have a word left out here in copying or a word added, but they're extremely minor and they don't affect any significant uh, doctrines. We also addressed this question, was a group of men either a rabbinical meeting or a church council that just arbitrarily decide the books? And that's just, as we'll see again this morning, that's just completely uh, fraudulent and a misrepresentation. The councils just recognized what was already uh, reality. They, rec- they, they were basically making a de facto judgment. It was already the practice of the church to only recognize these books. No other books were in competition. Uh, the next question has to do with interpretation, which is not the same as how do we know that we have the right books. Uh, the next question was, isn't the Bible the product of evolving religions? No. When you compare what's in the scripture with these other ancient religions, there's no similarity at all. And then there are not historical and scientific errors within the Bible. You have numerous uh, examples of things that have been said in the Bible that were questioned in times past, but 
through archaeological discoveries again and again, what the Bible says is confirmed to be uh, true. Uh, further, I also set up this little flow chart to point out that, yes, God, if God is God, that means that he can communicate. And if he can communicate, he can communicate clearly and he can protect his communication so that we can conclude that if God can communicate and communicate clearly, he can protect his communication, which means preservation of the text down through the ages, and that it would have certain characteristics. It would be consistent, accurate. It would be supported, validated through external evidence. It would be internally logical and rational, and it would be without error. These are the things that we have already established in the last three or four weeks. Now, last week I did introduce the new word canon of Scripture, which derives from the uh, Hebrew term kane and the Greek term kanon, meaning read. It's also, kanon is also the word from which we get our English word cane. And it was, a reed was used as a measuring device, and so it came to be uh, referred to a standard against which everything was measured. So the term canon refers to that uh, set group of books that are the authoritative books uh, with that are the basis for understanding God and understanding salvation. So there's an Old Testament canon and a New Testament canon. And last time uh, we saw that uh, the up until 1948, the Old Testament, the oldest Old Testament uh, manuscripts that we had were around the 9th, 10th, 11th century, and that the Old Testament that we have is based on what's called the Masoretic Text, which was the standardized text form that uh, the, the Jews had, had established by the 6th century A.D., and that uh, when we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, they confirmed the uh, veracity of the Masoretic Text. And so we had that thousand-year difference between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic Text. And then the New Testament is written in just this small time frame in the first century. The, we'll see in a minute that the earliest book is only written about 44, 45. It could have been earlier. But most scholars think somewhere around the mid-40s of the first century, and the last book is written around 95, the uh, Revelation written by John. So over a 50-year period, the New Testament uh, is written. Now, the New Testament is comprised of 27 books. Old Testament is comprised of 39 books. New Testament is comprised of 27 books. That will be on the quiz next week. <laughs> Remember those numbers? Okay. Just want to make sure everybody's still awake this morning. Twenty-seven books in the in the New Testament. There are four Gospels, and that number of Gospels has been set since at least the middle of the second century. Uh, Irenaeus, who was one of the early church fathers, he was taught and trained by a man named Polycarp, who in turn was taught and trained by the Apostle John. And Irenaeus wrote that by his time, there were only four Gospels, and there could only be four Gospels. And there are statements by some other early church fathers from the middle period of that second century, around 160, 150 to 170, that affirmed that by then it was set that there were only 
four Gospels. They didn't forget one. They didn't lose the Gospel of Thomas. They didn't miss out on the Gospel of Philip. They weren't even written yet by this time. And another thing that um, uh, I ought to point out at this time is when we date the uh, the writings of the New Testament, we see that they're all written between 45, uh, basically between 45 and 95 uh, A.D., and that it's been typical of liberal uh, liberal theology since the ni- since the middle of the 19th century to reject these conservative traditional dates for the New Testament, and they did that because they had various assumptions. One of which is that God really couldn't have revealed Himself in this manner, and so these are just uh, writings like every other writing. That was their controlling presupposition as they approach approach the New Testament. If they had just waited about 25 years with a lot of the uh, archaeological fi- fi- uh, finds that came along, they never would have had any. Uh, traction for their views at all, but they got them out there just in the nick of time, and so uh, we still run into, uh, you'll still run into professors at major universities and minor universities and, of course, community colleges that continue to state these things as if they're true. Uh, I didn't talk about it much when we talked about the Old Testament canon, but one of the liberal views on the Old Testament canon was that Moses could not have written uh, the Torah because they, the Jews didn't know how to write at that time in history. That, that writing came along after that. That was the view in the, in the 1840s when that theory was first, uh, first promoted. But since then we've discovered, for example, uh, the library at Ebla, which was, uh, d- which is dated to at least a thousand years before Moses and that they had a massive library. So a lot of these ideas that they had were, were proof false. When I was a freshman in, in uh, college and taking Western civilization, I was taught that uh, the documentary, what's called this view, which is called the documentary hypothesis, and that Moses couldn't have written because writing wasn't that well established by uh, 1400 B.C., so, of course, they didn't use 1400. They used the liberal date, which was about 1200. And, uh, and see, it's still taught today. In fact, I went back several, about 15 years later, 20 years later, and had a conversation with that same history professor. And um, I told him that, he, you know, all of his arguments were completely false and had been disproven for over 75 years, and he didn't want to believe that. So it, it, because people are committed to rejecting the Bible, so they're going to grab hold of any view that they, that they want to. But in the early, in the early, um, when it comes to the uh, New Testament, in the early 60s, a man by the name of John A.T. Robinson wrote a book. Uh, he'd written an earlier book that dealt with the death of God. He's a very liberal, very, very liberal theologian. But he wrote a book on dating the New Testament where he had to admit that all of the New Testament was written before uh, 70 A.D. Now, conservatives don't, in traditional uh, uh, Orthodox Christians, don't believe that. He put everything very, very early. And so, but he was honest with the evidence, and this just turned liberal theology uh, upside down. So uh, he confirmed that, again, that, that the New Testament had to have been written all in the first century. So you have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts, also written by Luke. Uh, those are the historical books. And then we have the epistles, 13 Pauline epistles. We have uh, three uh, written by John, three epistles by John, two by Peter, 
Then there's Hebrews, we don't know who the author was, uh, James and Jude, and then the last book revealed in the first century was Revelation around A.D. 95. So this chart here gives us a little timeline to show when these uh, were written. Uh, we start with the life of Christ. He was born approximately 4 to 5 B.C., and he died somewhere probably around A.D. 33. James, I believe, was... Uh, one of the earliest uh, epistles, probably written about 45 or 47, I think it was the first. It could have even been earlier. Some have suggested that it may have been written as early as A.D. 40. The Pauline epistles are written from the late 40s through about 64, 65 uh, A.D. Hebrews is written 63. Matthew's written somewhere between 57 to 59. Uh, Luke's, Luke probably, Luke and Acts probably around 61, and then, uh, Revelation written in AD 95. Uh, it's very common among most, uh, gospel scholars and, uh, comes out of liberal theology that Luke was written first. I don't think so. That's been disproven by a number of conservatives. It's probably Matthew written first, then, uh, Luke, then Mark, and then last would be the gospel. Uh, Gospel of John. So these are the books in the New Testament. They're written over a period of 50 years. They're written by a number of different uh, uh, authors. Uh, Peter was a fi- per, uh, commercial fisherman. Paul had been a rabbinical uh, student. Luke is thought to be a physician. Uh, then we have uh, a couple of minor players such as uh, uh, Jude, uh, the writer of Hebrews who is unknown to us. But these books all had apostolic authority behind them. Even though they weren't written by an apostle, Luke was not an apostle, Mark was not an apostle, uh, we don't know about the writer, writer of Hebrews, but they had apostolic authority behind them. Mark is, is, is believed to have been written by Mark, but it is told from Peter's viewpoint. Mark was uh, working with the very close to the apostle uh, Peter, just as Luke was very close to the apostle Paul. Luke was Paul's traveling companion, and when Paul was in prison in uh, Caesarea, uh, Luke had two years there where he could interview eyewitnesses, he could interview Mary, the mother of the Lord, the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, he could interview others who were eyewitnesses to uh, his life, to his ministry, to his death, and then he, uh, of course, was able to interview uh, Paul, and he had even participated with Paul on some of the missionary journeys. And so this is written from a first-hand account very well, uh, very well uh, researched. And so all of the books of the New Testament are written in that 50-year uh, period of time. By the time you get into the uh, decade of the 60s, several of Paul's letters are already thought to have been uh, inspired and uh, Peter refers to that in Second Peter chapter three, uh, verse sixteen. In fact, Peter also quotes from Luke as uh, authoritative as Old Testament passages uh, in uh, in First Peter. And so we have these examples that before the New Testament period is the, the canon is even fully written. There's always already a recognition that some of the other uh, New Testament writings have the same level of authority uh, as the uh, as the Old Testament. Now, as the text was copied and trans- transmitted down through the 
uh, down through the uh, next two or three centuries, they primarily wrote uh, wrote these in several several ways. They were written on papyrus, and papyrus would, uh, especially in the dry climates in Egypt, would be preserved very uh, uh, very well down through the, the centuries. And we've discovered a large number of papyri that either contain portions or almost all of the New Testament, and they date back to the 3rd century, 4th century, 5th century, uh, and 6th and century. Then you also had uh, various uh, parchments. Uh, you'd write on parchment various kinds of leather, and that this was uh, then bound together in more of what we think of as a book, and that was referred to as a, as a codex. So you had scrolls as well as these uh, early book forms called a codex, and so sometimes you'll hear these referred to as, for example, Codex Sinaiticus because that particular manuscript was found at, at uh, Mount Sinai, Codex Vaticanus, because that was in the library at the Vatican, uh, hidden away for uh, most of the uh, most of, for about 16 or 1700 years, and very few people even knew of its existence. And there have been two or three other uh, codexes. There were different types of writings in these manuscripts. There was what's called uncials, and uncials were written all in uppercase uppercase letters. We have 267 uncials. There are also minuscules. These are written in lowercase letters, and we have 2,764 uh, minuscule manuscripts. Then you have lectionaries. Lectionaries would be a scripture reading that was written out to be read uh, to the congregation in a service of some type. And, and if you come out of a background, for example, Methodist, Episcopal, or Roman Catholic Church, you'd be familiar with what a lectionary was. So it, this would just be a fragment, but we have over uh, 2,000 uh, lectionaries. Then we have over 88 uh, papyri, all for a total of 5,300 Greek Manuscripts, Greek documents, in whole or in part, some of which are just uh, very fragmentary. There's one uh, papyri from John uh, chapter 18, verses 31 to 34 and 37 to 38. That's referred to as P52, papyrus uh, number 52, and it's dated uh, somewhere between uh, 110 and 125. There's another papyrus that's referred to as P46, which some think, some scholars think may be just a little bit older. But P52, which uh, includes John 18, uh, those, those verses from John 18, if it's dated as early as, let's say, 115 or 120, 130, this is within probably a generation of John's original writing. Now, this papyrus was discovered in Egypt. So that shows that, that during that period of time, about 40 years from when John originally wrote it, and he probably wrote the Gospel of John while he was in Ephesus. So within 40 years, a copy of the Gospel of John had found its way into, uh, into Egypt. Uh, where this small uh, fragment had been preserved. And this is within a simple generation of its original writing. So we can uh, have great confidence that what we have before us in the Greek text that underlies our our English translation is accurate. And it goes back, to, and when we look and compare this to other ancient writings, uh, no other uh, ancient writings have near the documentation that the... Um, 
that you find for the Greek New Testament. I, I pointed out that we have over 5,000 uh, various uh, types of manuscripts related to the Greek New Testament. And then when you add to that the fact that we have over 10,000 Latin manuscripts plus uh, translations into Syriac and Ethiopic and a number of other different languages that date back to the first five or six centuries after the completion of the canon, this all gives us a pretty solid understanding of what the original text would have included. Now, when you compare that to other uh, ancient manuscripts, for example, in this chart, if you look at Homer and you just look at the Iliad, then um, that was written about uh, 800 B.C., the oldest uh, manuscript we have is 400 B.C., and there are about 400, uh, that's a 400-year gap, and we have about 645 uh, copies of Homer. When you look at, at Plato, for example, Plato, skip down a little bit, Plato wrote about uh, 400 B.C., the earliest copy of Plato that we have dates to 900 uh, that's a 1,300-year gap, and we have seven copies. Uh, when you look at Caesar's uh, Gallic Wars, uh, which he wrote around 100 to 44 B.C., uh, the earliest copy that we have is dated to A.D. 900, and that's a gap of 1,000 years, and we only have 10 copies. Uh, Livy's History of Rome, written about 59 uh, B.C., the earliest copy that we uh, have goes to the uh, 10th century. And it's written between 59 B.C. and uh, uh, 4 B.C. And the earliest copy we have is the 10th century. Uh, there's a thousand-year gap there. And we only have uh, one, one copy of one and 19 of another. Uh, the New Testament, in contrast, we have over uh, 5,000 uh, copies that date back within four or five centuries of the original writing. So there's no other... Um, ancient document that has the kind of support, the kind of number of copies that we have of the of the uh, New Testament. There are various uh, papyri collections that you'll refer to, or you'll hear referred to. There's the Oxyrhynchus papyri uh, that was discovered in uh, various papyrus fragments were discovered in the rubbish heaps in Oxyrhynchus, Egypt. Egypt has a very dry climate, and so a lot of these papyri were uh, able to be preserved for uh, the centuries in that dry, uh, dry climate. And over 35 uh, manuscripts containing portions of the New Testament were found in that uh, garbage dump, basically. Uh, then there's the Chester Beatty uh, papyri, which na is named after its owners, purchased in the 30s by Chester Beatty in the University of Michigan. And this includes three manuscripts that are very early, uh, very early on, P45, which is a third century which contains portions of all four Gospels and Acts. There's P46, which is maybe dated as early as late first century and has almost all of Paul's epistles and Hebrews, and P47, which is dated to the third century, which contains Revelation 9 through 17. Then there's the Bodmer Collection, uh, which is, includes 300 papyri in that collection, including uh, P66, and a number of other uh, papyri that are also dated uh, very early. Now, one of the more interesting uh, 
finds was Codex Sinaiticus, and uh, this is one of those great stories where one of the most uh, brilliant uh, Greek scholars of the, ninth, uh, of the 19th century discovered this. He was a young man. He wasn't 30 years of age yet, and he went to uh, St. Catherine's Monastery, which is on the traditional side of Mount Sinai, which uh, most scholars don't think was actually where Moses uh, received the law. But he was visiting there, and because he was such a brilliant, brilliant Greek scholar, he was about 28, 29 years of age, he uh, noticed that in, the, uh, in his room where he was staying, they had a pile of, of uh, the, this papyri that was being used and shredded up to, to light the fires in their rooms at night to keep them warm. And as he, you know, pulled one out to light it and the flame came up, he read it and realized he had a very ancient copy of the Greek New Testament. So he put that out and he got all this, all these, uh, wadded up papyri pieces in the, uh, uh, in the, in his, uh, uh, room there and spread them out and discovered he had a large section of the, of the Septuagint. And then he began to ask the monks if they had any others. And unfortunately, they burned a bunch already, but they discovered uh, the Codex there, uh, which is called uh, Codex Sinaiticus, and it, it contains the entire New Testament as also portions of the Old Testament. Here is a um, what it looks like. Uh, those are all capital letters, if you notice, and that's a little closer view for you. Notice they're, they're all capital letters, and you don't see any spaces between the words, and you don't see any punctuation. Uh, those are Greek letters, so they're pretty close to English, so you can kind of figure out a few things like that, but uh, uh, it's very, very difficult to read. But it is one of the great, um, great stories we have in discovering uh, manuscripts. And Codex Sinaiticus dates back to um, the middle of the 4th century A.D., about 350. Then there's Codex uh, uh, Vaticanus that's been in the Vatican Library since about 1481. And <clears throat> it was made available uh, only to a very, very few people. Uh, both uh, uh, Tischendorf, who I just mentioned, as well as Samuel Tregellis, who was another uh, textual scholar in the mid-19th century, were given access to it. Tregellis would go in and memorize large portions of it and come out, and because he wasn't allowed to take pen or paper or anything with him, he would be almost strip-searched every day before when he went into the library and came out to make sure he wasn't taking anything or he couldn't write out any copies, and he would just memorize uh, large sections of it, go out and write it down, and he published portions of that, which eventually put enough pressure on the Vatican to where they uh, released uh, a copy of that. So there's a, uh, a picture of Codex Vaticanus for you, and then you have various other uh, codexes that were found. Uh, all of these date around the 3rd to 5th century. And Codex Alexandrinus is a 5th century manuscript that has nearly all of the New Testament and it's generally thought to be very reliable in its uh, uh, in, in it, the Gospels and in the Pauline epistles. And so we have this this great collection of, of ancient documents, which gives us a, a great confidence in the text that we have. But that's only part of the question. The other part of the question is how did the canon come to be? How did we get these 27 books? What about some of these other things we hear about every now and then, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Philip or uh, the Epistle to Barnabas or the Didache, some of the other early writings from the late first century into the early 
early second century. And when we uh, take a look at the uh, that early early period, let me see if I can find my cursor here somewhere. There it is. Um, so there we go. You have three periods of time. You have a period of separate circulation from basically AD 70 to 170, the period of separation from AD 170 to 303, and then a period of completion from 303 to 397. In the period of, of separate circulation, this is when Paul had written letters to the, uh, the Thessalonians, to the Corinthians. Uh, Peter had written his two epistles. Uh, John had written his, and they were sent to the original recipient, and then they were just passed around. Churches would make copies. For example, when Paul wrote a letter to the Colossians, they were to make a copy and then send it on to the church at Aeropolis and some of the other churches in the vicinity. And so then they would begin to pass around, pass them around, and they would begin to collect them. But they, but basically for about a hundred years, they were in a separate circulation. And then there's a period of separation uh, when they're separating out these particular do, uh, doc, uh, documents and manuscripts and beginning to uh, collect them um, together. And this is the period from about 170 to 303. In the first period, you have a number of different uh, church fathers who make uh, very clear statements about uh, what's in the... Um, What's in the canon? For example, I've got a couple here. Uh, Irenaeus, about 160, says it's not possible that the Gospels can either be more or fewer in number than they are. They had to be four. Uh, Origen, who's also late 2nd century, early 3rd century, said, uh, I accept the traditional view of the four Gospels, which alone are undeniably authentic in the Church of God on earth. He also said, I know a certain Gospel, which is called the Gospel according to Thomas, and a Gospel according to Mathis. And many others have we, uh, have we read, lest we should in any way be considered ignorant. Nevertheless, among all these, we have appeared solely what the church has recognized, which is that only the four Gospels should be accepted. And so by his time, he recognizes that as far as the Gospels are concerned, there is a definitive collection of only uh, of only four. And so this gives us uh, great comfort to know that in the early church they had um, they had these. Another thing that, that we get from all of these early writings is that they, these uh, uh, pastors and teachers wrote and quoted many, many verses. Uh, thousands of verses are quoted in their sermons, and so that also attests to the uh, veracity of our, of our early, early text. In the period of separation, which is the period from 170 to 303, this is when they began to uh, separate out certain books and reject certain books. And you see that different, uh, different early church fathers made certain statements about which books they considered to be uh, authoritative. For example, Tertullian did not include uh, Hebrews, James, Second Peter, or Second and Third John. That can be uh, understood because Hebrews uh, didn't have a stated author, and one of the criterion was that it had apostolic authentication. And since they didn't know who wrote it, they weren't sure whether it was authoritative. James was not written to an area where he was, so that would be further away. Second Peter, uh, Second Third John were written to individuals, so these would have had uh, would have had a uh, less distribution than some of the other other books. 
uh, Origen, who dates also from the uh, mostly the early second or early third century, uh, stated that Hebrews, Second Peter, again, notice you'll see the same the same group of books basically get uh, get the question marks. Hebrews, Second Peter, Second Third John, James, Jude. Uh, he also included a couple of other books that were uh, read a lot in the early church: the Epistle of Barnabas, the Shepherd of Hermas, and the Didache. Uh, which means the teaching of the Twelve. So he questioned those, but outside of those, everything else that we have in our 20, uh, 27 New Testament books was accepted. By about 200, there is a, uh, can- a, a canon called the Muratorian uh, canon in which uh, just about all of our uh, books are included and accepted as, as the canon. Uh, Irenaeus, who I mentioned uh, earlier about the Gospels, uh, quotes from almost every uh, New Testament book except for Philemon, James, Second Peter, Second and Third John again, and Revelation. So uh, those are the books that are a little bit disputed, but by the end of the second century, uh, they are a- accepted. And in 367, Athanasius, who is the bishop of uh, uh, of Carthage, Bishop, excuse me, Bishop of Hippo, uh, writes an Easter letter where he mentions all 27 books that are included in our in our New Testament. And the tests for canonicity were that they recognized the that it was supervised, authenticated by by an apostle, that it was theologically consistent with the other books that were clearly known to uh, be authoritative and that they were used uh, by the Christian church. They were accepted by the church. There was no doubt. So that when the councils uh, began to meet and make statements about what books were uh, authoritative, it was a recognition of what was practiced, what was accepted throughout the Christian community. And there, it, it, some of the books that we have in our New Testament canon, they had some question about either because they were written to an individual, they weren't as widely distributed, or in the case of Hebrews, they didn't know who was written. They never really considered any other books as being part of the canon. And so when you run into people who say, oh, well, certain books were left out, blah, 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 those books were, uh, in most cases, they weren't weren't even written until the late 2nd century or into the 3rd century, and they were never part of the consideration as to be in the canon. And the one thing that we see throughout the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, in terms of these books that are in the canon, is they all have the same theme, the same common theme. They're all united in their view of God. They're united in their view of man and the sinfulness of man. They're united in the view of the need for the atonement and that, uh, and, and that only, that man can only be saved by God's grace and God providing the solution to man's sin problem. They, there's no, even though theologians may differ on things related to interpretations related to prophecy or interpretations related to some other things, the basic core doctrines that define Christianity are not in dispute and are not questioned or challenged in any of the, by any of the uh, textual variants that we find or by uh, any of the books that are in the New Testament. They stand united in their 
their testimony, their witness to all of the basic doctrines of Christianity, all of which, of course, points to the cross. Everything, whether it's Old Testament looking forward or the New Testament looking back, everything points to uh, the cross either as God's future plan for providing salvation for man or, in the case of the New Testament, helping us to understand exactly what took place on the cross and what its implications are for the spiritual life of the church age. So that the conclusion is that we can absolutely trust the word of God. Satan says, has God said? And we can answer with a resounding, yes, he has said, and we can trust it with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things today, to reflect upon your word and how you have preserved it down through the centuries so that we can say with certainty that we have your word, that this is not a human collection of writings uh, where uh, human beings are talking about uh, their religious experiences, but these writings, these 66 books of the Old and New Testament, clearly uh, present to us your revelation, supervised by you, superintended by you, as God the Holy Spirit wrote through these human authors, that your word has been given to us, revealed to us, and we can have absolute confidence in it. And that the ultimate message of the written word is to explain the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, who entered into human history to die on the cross for our sins. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or unsure of their eternal destiny, that you would make this sure and certain for them, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for all of our sins. He paid the penalty in full so that sin is not the issue, that the certificate of debt has been wiped out, and so that we can come into your presence. We can, have, we can be saved simply by trusting in Christ as our Savior. He is the uh, mediator. There is only one God and one mediator between God and man, and this is the man, Christ Jesus. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.